Now, remember what we said last time. Uh, under number on, on session four. So take out four a minute. Put five aside. Take out four a minute. And, and in four, can everybody see this screen okay? Remember what I said? Interpretation always begins with good what? You're not going to be able to find out what, it's, what it means until, first of all, you've spent adequate time observing what it says. Now, you know what? I've gotten ahead of myself tonight because I did want you to think about a statement to show you what's at stake here. Is what we're talking about important? It is. Look up here. If God's Spirit takes God's Word and uses it to conform us to the image of His Son, which He does, then your Bible study is essential to your Christian growth. In fact, you're not going to grow in your Christian life beyond where your Bible skill is. Okay? I'm not, and I'm, as we'll see when we get in session five, I'm not just talking about skill, head knowledge. Okay? So this shows you what's at stake. Again, uh, though, when it comes to interpretation, begins with good observation. The quality of your interpretation will always depend on the quality of your observation. Can, can everybody over there see this? If not, all I know to do to tell you is you'd have to move. I'm sorry. Because <laughs> y'all are... These wings, I got I to gotta try to make sure they can see the screen and they can see the screen. So if you can't, just kind of quietly move into one of these sections if you could, please. Uh, why do we need interpretation? What did we say about that last time? You remember? What were some of the things we said about why we need to interpret the Bible? What are, what are some of the barriers that we talked about? You remember those? Right. There's time, distance, and culture has separated us from King David or Moses or Paul. There's language barriers. We don't, you don't speak Hebrew for the Old Testament. And portions of the Old Testament, like Daniel chapters 2 to 7, would be in Aramaic. You don't speak Koine Greek, common street language Greek in the New Testament. We don't speak those languages. Language barriers, cultural barriers, communication barriers. That's one reason we need to spend time on interpretation. Getting from the then to the now, right? We talked about hazards to avoid. Remember that? Everybody remember that last time? Misreading the text. Uh, the problem is not with the Word of God. The problem is with my understanding of the text. If I misread the text, I will misinterpret the text. Uh, and I use the example out of 1 Timothy. Where it says, for the love of money 
is the root of all sorts of evil. If I conclude money is evil, I've misread the text. It's the love of money that is the root of evil. Uh, we've got to be careful. We don't distort the text. The cults are famous for this. And I gave you the example of how the Jehovah Witnesses, I, I gave you a particular verse, how they will actually pull a word out of the text and substitute in another word in Colossians 2 that supports their theology. Because the word that's there would run head on into their theology. And so they have to pull a word out and insert another one in. That's deliberately distorting the text. We talked about over-spiritualizing the text. Somebody might do that with the resurrection. The resurrection is just a spiritual matter. No. The Bible says Christ was bodily raised from the dead. And the hope in the scripture is you and I will be bodily raised from the dead too. That's the promise of scripture. Uh, subjectivism. Uh, here's a big no-no. Uh, many Christians are just mystics, basically, when they come to their Bible reading. They don't want to put any serious study into it. They just want to kind of read their Bible and see how it, it strikes them. I called it the liver quiver. They just want the liver quiver, the feeling. Uh, presuppositions, we've got to be cautious about those. Where we say, oh, I don't need to study that passage. I already know everything that it says. Do you? You might be surprised. Uh, insights on interpretation. What type of literature am I looking at? What's the genre? Is it historical narrative? Is it wisdom literature? Is it gospel material? Is it parables? Am I reading from the prophets? Is it apocalyptic, like the book of Revelation? Is it epistle, like Paul's letters to the Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, so forth and so on? Is it didactic teaching material, like the book of James? What's the context? A text without a context is but a pretext. Don't divorce the passage you're studying from the context, the message of the book that that passage is in, what comes before and after that passage. Context. Take advantage of consultation. I told you I'm moving fast through this, okay? Because this is review from last time. Am I moving too fast? Nope, good. Consultation is where you use your secondary sources. Don't ever be so arrogant that you can't learn from others. If, you, if you've come out with an interpretation that nobody else agrees with, then chances are you've come up with the wrong interpretation. And you know, we, we respect the office of teaching in the church, right? I hope you got a good Sunday school teacher. I hope I do a decent job from the pulpit with passages. 
commentaries are just are teachers that have put their material to print. I hope you'll consult some of those to learn from them and won't have the attitude, oh, I don't have anything to learn from anybody else. These are men and women who have spent their lives investing in learning original languages and context and historical settings and so forth. They have a lot to teach us. So consult your sources to make sure your interpretation is, is right. And I, in session one, I gave you some of those resources. If you forgot about that, I do have session one over there. You can pick it up afterwards and it has some of those listed. Remember I said scripture will never contradict scripture? If you're coming up with two entirely different interpretations, different passages, you need to rethink that because scripture fits together like a glove. I use the example of if a church, if we had a widower in the church, which we've had before, widowers who they've been put up as, as a deacon, there, there's even been some scholars and some people in the church say, oh, that person can't serve as a deacon because a deacon's supposed to be a mia ganukas andra, a one-woman man. And if he is a widower who's been remarried, he's no longer a one-woman man. He's had two wives. But that would be incorrect because Romans 7 says if your spouse dies, you can remarry without any stigma that would come with, with remarrying under some other circumstances. So again, Scripture will never contradict Scripture. Uh, always seek the full counsel of God. If you're studying, for instance, a doctrine or a topic such as sanctification, you would want to get out your exhaustive concordance and trace that topic all the way through Scripture and, and look at what the overall Scripture says about it. I mentioned also always interpret Scripture literally unless you have an indication in the text it's not to be taken literally. Uh, you know, if Jesus says he's the door, he doesn't mean that he's a slab of oak or cedar or maple. We know what a door is. It's an entry point into a room or a fold. So hopefully you wouldn't read that literally, that he's the door thinking of a plank of wood. But what that word stands for in that context. Uh, Never use an obscure passage to contradict the clear teaching of Scripture. Somebody might wrestle with assurance of salvation, and they come to me and say, Pastor, I've been reading in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6. And you know what? Based on Hebrews chapter 6, I think I might have lost my salvation. That's a very difficult text. I'll, I'll give you that. And lots of ink spilt on that. But we have an abundance of passages in the New Testament that talk about 
the absolute bedrock security of our salvation and how you're not going to lose it. Very clear passages where there's no doubt, no question about what the passage is saying. Let those clear passages help shed light on the more obscure, not the other way around. Allow the Old Testament to clarify. Uh, Allow the Old Testament to be clarified by the New Testament. Somebody says, Pastor, I was reading in the book of Leviticus. I'm supposed to either be bringing uh, a bull if I'm a wealthy family. A bull without blemish. If I'm a middle class family, I need to be bringing a a lamb without blemish. Or if my family's dirt poor, we need to be bringing turtle doves. And we need to be bringing that sacrifice at worship all the time. Why are we not doing that, Pastor? Because what's the new covenant make clear? Christ fulfilled all that. Aren't you glad you don't have to bring all that? Um, Figuring out the figurative. Use the literal, as I just mentioned, unless there's some good reason not to. Use the figurative when the passage tells you to do so. For instance, Daniel chapter 2. Daniel sees a vision of a statue. It's very clear that from what the text goes on to say that that statue and the different kinds of metals are representative of different kinds of kingdoms. Those same kingdoms show up again in Daniel 7, but not as a statue, but as fierce wild beasts. Again, those stand for a, a kingdom. They're being used figuratively use the figurative sense if a literal meaning is impossible or absurd Revelation 1.16 says out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword what does that mean? does that mean Jesus opens his mouth and out from his tongue comes a A metal sword? No, of course not. What's the book of Hebrews say about the word of God? The word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. Um, So you have to consider how that fits with imagery. Uh, Use the figurative sense. If a literal meaning would involve something immoral, I know the Catholics would disagree with us on this, But in John 6, when Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, we know that when we're partaking of the Lord's Supper, we're not literally eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. In Catholic theology, you are. The elements become, when the priest holds them up and blesses them before the people partake, it becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus. Uh, But again, 
you use the figurative. If, if a literal meaning would involve something immoral. Uh, use, oops, got too fast. Use the figurative sense if the expression is an obvious figure of speech. Uh, and a lot of times it'll, it'll set it up as a comparison, like such and such, or as, using similes. And, and this is something in the Bible we've got to really pay attention to. Uh, you have the use of anthropomorphisms. You know what that means? When human characteristics are given to God. Isaiah 59.1, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. Neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. Giving human qualities to God. Well, the scripture says God is spirit. So he doesn't have a hand and ears the way we think of ours. That's an anthropomorphism. Uh, here's another one. Addressing a thing as if it were a person. Uh, or an imaginary person as if he were present. Oh death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Talking to death as though it's an animated being versus something inanimate. Um, still another one. I gave you all these, didn't I? Okay. Uh, the use of a less offensive expression to indicate a more offensive one. Would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. What's Paul's discussion there in Galatians about? Circumcision. And remember how the Judaizers were telling the Galatian churches, if you want to become a Christian, you've got to become a good Jew first. And in order to become a good Jew first... The males have to be circumcised. And only then can you become a Christian because you need circumcision plus Jesus. You need both to be right in the eyes of God. And Paul says that is a false gospel. Insisting on circumcision. That, what, what scripture talking about now is the circumcision of the heart. The Judaizers were preaching a false gospel. And in, rather, in a rather crude way, talking about circumcision, Paul is basically saying, man, I just wish you'd go ahead and mutilate yourself. <laughs> Not just circumcision the way we think. Just go ahead and, well, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Hyperbole, exaggeration to say more than is literally meant. Paul said to the Corinthians, I robbed other churches taking wages from them to serve you. Hyperbole. 
He was chastising the Corinthians for how stingy they were and how he was having to rely on other churches to support his ministry because the Corinthians were such skinflints. Here's another one. A comparison. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Um, hypo, uh, hypocatatases. That's a mouthful, isn't it? An idiom. There's lots of idioms in the Bible. An expression that's peculiar to a particular people at a particular time. He was gathered to his people would be an example of that. What does that mean? He was gathered to his people. Were they having a Sunday buffet after lunch? No. What's, what's it saying? He died. He died. Yes. Uh, metaphor. Where one thing represents another, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. A paradox, a statement that seems absurd, self-contradictory, or contrary to logical thought. Matthew 16, 25 would be an example. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Is Jesus saying you got to go out and kill yourself? No. It's a paradox. He's talking about losing yourself in the sense of your desires, your ambitions and goals, living for him. Uh, Personification, ascribing Uh, Human characteristics or actions to inanimate objects or animals. The moon will be abased and the sun ashamed. Uh, Rhetorical questions. A question that requires no response. You're forced mentally to consider the ramifications, but it needs no answer. Uh, Psalm 56, 11, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Well, obviously, man can't do anything to you if God's with you. It's a rhetorical question. You don't even have to answer it. A simile, a comparison like using like or as. He will be like a tree. The one who is in the word of God, meditating on it. He will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water. So what am I saying? I'm saying that when when we're talking about interpretation, we have to realize that the Bible uses all of these things. Okay? We have to realize that. Any questions about that? Like I say, I I went super, super fast. I know I did. Now, just a, a mind teaser a minute. 
when I say you've got to interpret Scripture literally, you get into the book of Revelation, Revelation 1.1, John says, I'm going to communicate to you in symbols. If you interpret symbols symbolically, that is literal interpretation. Right? Letting the symbol speak for itself. Right? that make sense uh, so you know when you get in symbolic uh, literature or statements you interpret symbolic symbolically and that is a literal interpretation of symbolic uh, the hundred and forty four thousand twelve thousand from each of the twelve tribes who's that some interpreters say it's, it's the Jews. But no, the very next passage answers what that symbol refers to. It's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are gathered around the throne. It can't be 12,000 from each tribe. The records were destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Somebody says, but God knows who they are. Well, God doesn't undo history. Since their records have been destroyed, there is no tribal purity. They've all intermarried with one another. There is no tribal purity today. So what's the 144,000 stand for? It's a symbol. And the next passage answers who it's talking about. It's talking about the full plethora of believers. Symbols. So again, in symbolic literature... You have to interpret things symbolically as the symbols indicate. Uh, any questions about interpretation? Again, I, I went fast on purpose because I didn't want to burn up all of our time getting into the next thing tonight since we'd covered interpretation last time. Just trying to catch everybody up in your minds. Good to go? Okay, let's get out of this one. And get into application. Turn with me to 2 Timothy for a moment. 2 Timothy. You know this passage well. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. When we talk about this, Why is it giving me something that's not giving you on my screen? There. Oops. It's telling me to turn on subtitles and giving me some little image to do that. Oh, well.
In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we see both the nature of the Word of God and the nurturing effect of it. We see in 2 Timothy 3, 17, what's the goal of the inspired Scripture? What's the goal? Head knowledge alone? Life change so that you'll be equipped for every good work. That's why Scripture is inspired. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That, every, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In other words, folks, look up here a minute. The Bible was not written to satisfy our curiosity but to change our lives. Okay? Application may be the most neglected, yet the most needed stage in the process. We talk about observation, interpretation, and application. Those three. Application may be the most neglected. For example, Americans say by... Percentage, still big percentages, not what it used to be. It used to be like 90, 95% who said they were Christians. You know, every year the number of Americans who identify as Christians keeps going down. It's getting kind of disturbing. But still, a huge percentage say that they're believers. And yet the moral and spiritual condition of the nation has never been so bad. Crimes everywhere. Lying, cheating, stealing, adultery, fraud, murder, rape, suicide, abortion. On and on and on we could go. Things that are just rampant. Something is wrong. People who are saying they're Christians apparently aren't living like it. There's a problem with application. You see the problem? Uh, too much Bible study begins and ends in the wrong place. It begins with interpretation and it ends there. But as we've already pointed out, it doesn't begin with interpretation. It begins with observation. You don't attempt to answer the question, what does it mean, until you first answer the question, what does it say? Then you get around to what does it mean? And then after you learn, okay, here's what it means, then what have you got to ask? How do I do this? How do I put it into practice? Because that's the whole point of the Bible. In Titus 1.1 and Titus 2.9, it makes the point that application makes the truth of God's Word attractive. We are to adorn the gospel. Applied truth, uh, attractive truth is applied truth. If unbelievers see you doing something that's totally contrary to the truth of God's Word, what are they going to say about you? That's not adorning the gospel very good, right? 
And even unbelievers can, can see that and make judgments on it. Uh, somebody may say, but you know, I've been through the Bible ten times, cover to cover. But the question is, has the Bible been through you? Again, the Bible isn't... The Bible isn't simply meant to intellectually excite us. It's also intended to morally and spiritually change us. Life change. Life change. That's the point of God's Word. As I'm reading God's Word, am I applying it and is it changing my life? If it's not, if I'm stopping with observation what it says and then interpretation what it means but then I'm not doing anything with it in my life I've missed the point <clears throat> substitutes for application uh, we substitute interpretation sometimes for application we, we settle for knowledge alone uh, I know this sounds a lot like the illustration I gave this morning. It's not the same one. It's a similar one and just as tragic. You've heard of the, uh, what psychologists refer to now as the Genovese effect. You know who I'm talking about? It's a term now. Uh, Kitty Genovese. She was a young lady who was brutally attacked beaten, raped, and ultimately killed. She was murdered in a fashionable New York City neighborhood. And in the aftermath of the crime, uh, reporters interviewed countless neighbors to find out if anybody had any clues. Incredibly, they learned 38 people had heard Kitty's screams. 38 people. Some of those 38 said they had even visibly witnessed the attack nobody came to her rescue uh, Kitty's murder you can go home and read about it it was a watershed moment in American culture sociologists have reflected on it how could we develop a society in which a human being could be attacked so viciously and violently with the public's knowledge and yet nobody helped Knowledge didn't turn in to responsibility and action on anybody's part. Folks, from cover to cover, the Bible teaches the moment you know God's truth, the ball is in your court, you are responsible for putting it into action. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you don't do what I say? Jesus gave a parable where he talked about two different houses. We're all builders. He said, if you hear my word and, you, and it doesn't produce life change or action, you're like somebody who builds their house on the sand. The storms come, 
the rains fall, the floods rise, the winds beat against that house. It falls and great is the fall of it. But the one who hears my word and puts them into practice is like the wise builder who builds his house on the rock. Storms still come. Hey, Christians, got news for you. Trials still come. Storms still come because we live in a fallen world. Until Jesus comes and sets things right in the new heavens and new earth, guess what? Christians go through bad stuff just like unbelievers. Storms still come. Rains fall. Floods come. Speaking figuratively of trials. But Jesus said your house will stand because it's built on the rock. What's the difference between the two builders? Application. Both heard. The unwise builder, the foolish builder still heard. He just didn't do anything with it. Ball's in your court. Uh, we substitute superficial obedience for st substantive life change. This, this is said to be in areas where we're going to apply Scripture to areas that suit us. And uh, leave other areas untouched that we kind of want to still do things the way we want to do things. Superficial obedience instead of total obedience. For instance, Ephesians 4 that deals with honesty. Here's a businessman that says, okay, I'm going to be honest with my wife. I'm going to be honest with my children and uh, my work associates, but... Meanwhile, with my competitors in business, I, I'm not going to be honest with them. i got to survive in the real world. That's superficial obedience, isn't it? He's kind of picking and choosing where he wants to obey the word, right? Application calls for total obedience. Again, when we understand what the text says... And, and what it means for us today, we've got we've to do it. Not just superficially do it in the areas of life where, where it's okay with us, but ignore it in areas where we still want to kind of chart our own course. Uh, we substitute rationalization for repentance. Rationalization for repentance. We could use that same guy again. That same guy that says, I've got to survive in the real world. I can't be honest with my competitors. I can't let them get a leg up on me. They're not believers anyway. I could be like them if I'm going to survive in this business. Rationalization. That's not application. We substitute an emotional experience for a volitional decision. Oh, we love the Sunday school teacher who can make us laugh and cry, right? Or the pastor who, man, the stories, he can make us, he can carry us to the mountaintop, drop us 
leave church, man, that just such an emotional man that was that was a great Sunday school lesson that was a a great sermon two days later you ask the person well what was the Sunday school lesson on what was the sermon on uh I don't know made me feel good though an emotional experience that's all they they did Howard Hendricks the guy who wrote a book on how to study your Bible that I'm basing a lot of this on um I would recommend this book to you, Living by the Word, Howard Hendricks. Uh, He tells a story one time where he was preaching on the importance of Christians evangelizing the world and beginning right where they are. There's a young couple, went home, had lunch, put their kids down for a nap, and, and they went into their living room and began reading and discussing the sermon for that day. And they began praying about what they ought to do with it. They got up from praying and their neighbor, who they knew was lost, he was out cutting his grass. Well, they looked at each other. And the husband went outside. He ended up, the husband and wife both, with this lost couple. They struck up a friendship with them started having them over Uh, eventually they were able to lead this couple to faith in Christ Uh, just by befriending them and investing in that that couple what is that that is a volitional decision you see when the preacher was talking about reaching the world we gotta reach the world Oh, people were getting so excited. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Getting all emotional about it. Yeah, we ought to do that. Woo! Here was a couple that said, okay, how are we going to make a decision to actually put this into practice and start where we are with lost people around us? That's moving it out of just the emotional. Right? Uh, A look in the mirror. James 1, through 25 tells us what we ought to be doing. Uh, in fact, let me turn there and read that. 1, to 25. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was folks the Word of God is like a mirror that exposes all of our faults and and the one who's just a hearer only he might conclude you know I'm a mess my life is a mess I mean the Word of God is really exposed I'm a mess but then he doesn't do anything about it One twenty-five says there's a blessing that comes with application. The one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it. Not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. Application. Jesus also said the same thing in the passage in John 13 when he took the towel and the basin of water and he washed his disciples' feet. 
The lowliest bond servant in a household was supposed to do that job of washing the feet of people who came in to the home. Jesus did that. You remember Peter initially protested and then let Christ. And what Jesus say when he stood up and looked at his disciples I've given you an example that you should do and you'll be blessed if you serve this way put it into practice application four steps four steps in application no we must relate the Bible to us uh, excuse me, let me back up. If, if you want to apply the Bible, you need to know the text. Application, again, it can't begin until you understand it. Know yourself too. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Where does the Bible hit you the most? Then relate. Relate the Bible to us. It's about men and women who lived long ago. But remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? Everything that happened to the saints of old serves as an example for us today. In other words, when the Bible talks about Joseph, for example, it's not just laying down truths for Joseph Joseph becomes an example for us and we could talk about Joseph's life perseverance and trusting God when he was in prison for something he didn't deserve all kinds of application for us the Bible's not telling us just about Joseph alone but so we can relate it to our lives the Bible speaks about a new relationship with God. It speaks about a relationship with others. It exposes your sin. You know, I think of the lady who said to her pastor one morning, Pastor, I hope those folks in church with me this morning listen to you. What you said this morning really stepped on their toes, and some of them needed to listen. Well, did she listen? The Word of God gives you promises, it gives you commands, it gives you examples to follow. And so you got to relate it to yourself in application. For application to take place too, you got to meditate on the Word. Psalm 1 talks about not just reading through it as fast as you can, to check off the box, I've done that for the day, but to meditate on it. You know, we don't reflect enough on what we read in the Bible. We don't take time to slow down and just really meditate and reflect. But if you're going to apply what it's saying, you got to take time to do that. Practice. Always walk away from your study of the Bible with some kind of application. Why did God use an Abraham like he did? Why did God use a Moses like he did? Why did God use a Paul like he did? They practiced the Word of God. If we want to be usable vessels, we've got to be doers of the Word. 
So this passage I'm reading, how am I going to be a doer of this word? How am I going to put it into practice? Again, I've got to know the word. I've got to know what it's saying. I've got to relate it to my life. And I've got to determine to put it into practice in my life. Now, questions to ask to encourage application. Is there an example for me to follow? Is there an example for me to follow? You know, <clears throat> Bible characters are, are great to study. I love studying Bible characters because we see how God's dealing with people. Um, use the example of, you know, Abraham's intercession. What about an application for me? Am I burdened for the people around me in interceding? Am I praying for the lost people around me that are going to face the judgment of God unless they turn to Him? So, Abraham praying over Sodom and Gomorrah. Am, am I interceding over the lost? Those who are in, in peril God's judgment. Is there a sin to avoid? Is this passage telling me something that I need to be careful of in my life? Is there a prayer to offer? Prayers in the Bible are great places to learn about prayer. Right? You read Paul's prayer, for example, to the Colossians. Colossians 1, 9 to 14. And you see what he prayed for the Colossians. Man, jot down some of what he's praying for them. And pray that for the people in your life. So when you find prayers in the Bible, write down what, what the person's praying for. And say, you know what? I ought to be praying for that in my life too. So many times our prayer life is it's nothing more than an organ recital. You know what I'm saying there? Lord, heal his kidneys. Heal her heart. Right? But you read some of the prayers of the Bible and what they're praying for. Wow! Jot down some of the petitions and the prayers in the Bible and start praying those over your life and the people in your life you love. And that'll also be praying according to the will of God because that's prayers in His inspired and errant word. Is there a command to obey? Is there a condition to meet? For example, Jesus said, If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you shall bear much fruit. You want to bear much fruit? Do you? Okay, then what's the condition? 
You've got to abide in Christ, and his word has to abide in you. There's a condition to meet. 2 Chronicles 7.14. And I know where you're going with this, but speak up and tell us what. Yeah. Yeah. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... Then I will hear them, and I will heal their land. Hmm? And forgive their sin. Yes. Yes. I gave a paraphrase, didn't I? Uh, we, we want God to heal the land and forgive us. Well, there's condition there, isn't it? Repentance. Is there a verse to memorize? You know, you may be reading a passage that one verse stands out to you in that. Make a little note card on that. And remember, you know, recite it to yourself, commuting to and from work, put it on your bathroom mirror. What just you can memorize verses. You really can. It's not as hard as you think. You can do it. Some of you think I can't do it. Yes, you can. And guess what? As you get older, like me, it's good for you to do that too, right? Memorize. Because folks, think about it. If we ever have the persecution in this land that some other lands today face, you might not even be able to have a Bible that you can read. It may turn out to be your knowledge of the scriptures, that which you have memorized. You can memorize the Bible. Do you know Jewish children growing up in Old Testament times, they had to memorize the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. All of it. They had to memorize all of it. You what? Yeah. Even Muslims memorize the Quran. You can memorize scripture. Okay? And when you do that, again, it's, it's getting it in you to where when you face a situation in life, the Holy Spirit brings that to your mind. Is there a challenge to face? For instance, we're told, if we're told to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow after Jesus... How do I need to do that in my own life? What are some ways in my life I need to deny myself, pick up my own cross, and follow him? You need to think about that. Again, that's application. When we talk about application, principles are wonderful things. Understand the Bible does not address Every single specific scenario that every person on planet earth will ever face. If it did, we would need multiple train cars, planes, buses, trucks 
to carry the Bible. Because it would have to be so big, it would fill up multiple trains, miles long each. The Bible, though, gives us principles that applies to every situation anybody will ever face. Right? For instance, again, what it does and doesn't tell us. If you were on your way to church this morning, you passed a senior adult lady with a flat tire. There's nowhere in the Bible that says on such and such Sunday, you're going to pass a little old lady on your way to church. She's going to have a flat tire. Stop and help her. But there are many places in the Bible that lay down principles for you that that tell you to love your neighbor as yourself, to carry one another's burdens, to love with tangible deeds. So you know from the principles in the Bible that you ought to stop and help her, right? Procedures to keep in mind as I seek to apply the Scripture. What is the doctrinal teaching of this passage? Check the national setting. For instance, if you're reading Ezekiel 34, the vision of the valley of dry bones, that's referring to Israel's future restoration he's talking about in that passage. There's a national setting. Check the cultural setting. Uh... For example, 1 Corinthians 11, women wearing veils. Women wearing veils. That was the custom of the day. In public settings, women wore veils. To not do so was seen as rebellion against authority. Do women wear veils publicly today? No. Uh But is there still a need for all of us in society, not just women, but to submit to authorities? You better believe it. That principle is still there. There, There's a cultural setting, but there's a way it applies to us. 1 Corinthians 8, meat sacrifice to idols that would offend a weaker believer. Do we run the risk of that today? You know, in Paul's day, there would be a meat market in town where the pagan religions, too, that sacrifice things. A Christian could say, you know, there's nothing to that idol or that false god that they sacrifice that cow to. Or I can go down to the meat market and, hey, that, that cow that was sacrificed to that false Greek or Roman god, it's on sale. I can get, a, I can get it at a great price. That God doesn't mean anything to me. It's good stewardship. Then you invite a couple from church over and you tell, man, this meat's good. Yeah, let me tell you where I got it. Got a great price on it. And they're weak Christians. And they say, what? Read meat from that? Yeah. And you cause them to stumble. Paul says, then I'm not going to eat that meat. I'm not going to eat or drink anything that's going to cause my brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble. Is there any application in that in your life today? 
again, it wouldn't be in the area of me. But can you think of other things in your life that you might feel like you have the, the personal freedom and liberty to do? In Christ, even, you feel like you're perfectly free, have the liberty to do something. But a weaker believer, you might cause them to stumble. So what's Paul say? Evaluate the things in your life that you might have a freedom to do, cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble, and you need to be willing to forego your rights so your weaker brother or sister doesn't stumble. So things in cultural settings that's, that still apply. Check, check the historical setting uh, and the biblical setting. Again, I gave you an illustration earlier uh, about uh, sacrifices in the Old Testament that today would be obsolete. The New Testament has made that part of the Old Covenant obsolete or it's fulfilled. Have I consulted the whole counsel of God on this topic? Am I reading a preconceived bias into my application? Where do I begin? Where do I begin? Here's a person who, you know, they want to reach the world for Christ. Or another one who wants to uh, read through their Bible this year or somebody else decides to memorize 250 verses of the Bible this next year all of those are great goals but what are you going to do about it until you decide to do something about application you're only filled with good intentions and it's been said that good intentions are like worthless checks So make a decision to change. Make up your mind where you need to change and what you need to do about it. And the more clear you are with your objectives, the more likely you are to accomplish them. Fuzzy objectives are going to lead to fuzzy results. Uh, if you say you're going to evangelize more, that's so vague you may have a hard time with it. But if you're thinking about, I need to witness to John and Mary next door, that takes on a new meaning, doesn't it? Praying for them, using opportunities to reach them. <clears throat> Come up with a plan. You want to study the New Testament? Great. I don't advise that you start with the book of Revelation. Have a plan maybe to attack some smaller books in the Bible first. Kind of get comfortable with outline, doing those observation sheets and charts we've talked about. Those steps of observation, doing that maybe in shorter books before you branch out and, and uh, do, do larger ones. Follow through. Follow through. Do you feel like you don't have time to study the Bible? Okay, what do you need to do 
to rearrange your schedule. If you don't feel like you have time, I bet you if you sat down and thought about your time, you'd think plenty of areas where you could really carve out some time, right? And, and in follow-through, maybe tell your spouse, if you're married, your, your, your plan, and ask them to hold you accountable. Honey, from 9 to 9.45 every night, make sure I'm accountable. I've, I've made a commitment this year. I'm going to study my Bible. Would you hold me accountable to that? Or the first 30 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour after I get home from work, would you hold me accountable to that? Follow through on that. Come up with a specific plan, manageable plan with manageable goals how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Manageable goals. Have a plan. Follow through. And ask somebody in your family to hold you accountable to it. All of these things help with application. Any, any comments or questions? I know our time's up for the evening. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know if you heard what Sandra said, but another benefit of studying the Bible yourself and really getting to know the Bible is so... When you hear speakers and teachers, you can identify what they're saying is truth or not. You'll have greater discernment because you've studied it for yourself. Discipline. Yep. Exactly. Yes. Jerry Sullivan, would you close us in prayer tonight?